Hey, I'm Danny Levy, and you're listening to Digital Transformation and Leadership, the show where we go behind the scenes with today's top business leaders to understand how they're digitally transforming their company. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Heyer, the Director of Data at Two Think Now. Christopher, welcome to Digital Transformation and Leadership. Ah, thank you very much, uh, Danny, for having me on and the opportunity to speak to your well dataverse listening group. Um, and you and you're dialing in from from Melbourne today. Yes, yes. You could have caught me in Queensland, but you caught me in Melbourne. So the coffee's great. That's the the upside. Nothing can be a good coffee. I must admit, I'm a bit of an addict. I, I would be suspicious if anyone wasn't an addict. <laughs> and, uh, so Christopher, just to, just to kick us off today, I thought it would be good if you could uh, quickly share a little bit more about your background and what it is you're doing with your company to think now. Sure. So what our company was created to do was to measure and promote innovation uh, as an agency. Uh, that was about uh, 2006. Uh, what we've been doing since then is publishing. One of the things we do is we publish the Innovation Cities Index which has been running since 2007. So whenever your listeners hear a ranking for city innovation or advanced technology or even smart cities, mm. that's often us. Uh, the Innovation Cities Index is our headline ranking, but we've also worked in total on around 39 different rankings uh, over that period where we're providing data at a city level. So in a way, we've turned from an innovation agency to our primary product, which is accurate information on cities worldwide that you cannot get just by uh, any other means really. So we, we have accurate data about cities and that's sort of how we drive innovation and look at innovation. And that's like the current focus really. And so whenever you hear about, or your listeners hear about rankings for cities, uh, that's kind of where we are. Um, and how we, we work is we basically sell that data to corporations uh, mostly. And it's all, um, it's all data that you really necessarily can't just get by looking for it. Uh, and one of the reasons is, of course, a lot of the data in the world is totally and utterly uh, fake news. Uh, <laughs> as they say, you know, whether it's fake on the left or fake on the right, it doesn't really matter. But, but there's so many mistakes in just your average news story and and, you, and anybody can see that in the sense that the unemployment rate will be one number, um, but that's what will be quoted. But then you do a straw poll of friends and you, you find out that two out of 10 of them are unemployed, which makes it 20% amongst your friend group. And you, you ask around a bit further and you suddenly find there's a massive rate of unemployment. And that's due to the technical definition of unemployment, which in some cases is working one hour a week. Um, so, um, one hour a week doesn't pay for your uh, your dry cleaning. So uh, that's the, the sort of thing. We, we unpick all that uh, and unpack all that technical stuff and come up with accurate data about the world at a city level. And we've been doing that for a while uh, for many, many different companies. So uh, Christian, I guess can I, in the can past, I ask, is, is yeah. this data that's open to everyone or is this, is this data that's exclusive and, and difficult to get hold of? How, how does it work? Well, national data is open to everyone. Mm. Uh, but even if you look at that, quite often you have to understand it. So, for instance, if you're looking at GDP and you hear the governments say that the GDP is up, that, they're quoting one number. 
then if you convert that and look at it in another way, the GDP is actually down. So it can be out by $200 billion, depending on how you're measuring it. So if you don't understand necessarily what the numbers mean, just quoting it doesn't necessarily make it accurate. And so there might be 30 different variations of a GDP number. And depending on how you interpret it, you can torture that poor number into saying damn near anything. And that's one of the issues. So that's one of the reasons why we end up into those horrible Twitter debates where people find that they're, they believe they're right when they're, they're wrong and believe they're wrong when they're right. Mm. Uh, because effectively, everybody can quote a number to justify the position. And what Toothic now do is we dig into the numbers and find out what's actually happening at a city level, which varies quite a bit. And so city data is extremely hard to find. Um, and on top of that, even if you do find it, you have to interpret it and interpreting it can, I mean, there's 800% variances in some things. So just to quote a number is to, to not necessarily be right. Um, and that's where we come in. We, we do that sort of process for people so they can make sure that they've got accurate data for decision-making. It's very hard to get accurate data for decision-making. And often if your gut tells you the numbers are off, they're actually off. doesn't matter if the UN published them or anyone else. It's because there's technical reasons why the numbers might say what they say, but they don't actually reflect on the ground reality. Unemployment doesn't reflect the number of people who are not working. Um, if you talk about shadow unemployment, that might do, but then there's all sorts of issues with that. So really, if you want to answer a question about inflation, that doesn't reflect the cost of living. So all these things do not reflect what they're being used for. Therefore, your models are off. Therefore, your data's off. Therefore, your decision making's off and therefore you don't make money. So that's kind of what we do is provide companies with more accurate data at a city level so they can see. And, and that's one of the things we do. So I think that, that leads us nicely into the topic we're going to get into today, which is a which is a bit of a deep dive on technology and specifically how technology isn't a strategy. And this is something yep. that I've been having lots of discussions on recently, both on, on the podcast here, but but also with, with clients and, and with partners, um, the company I work for. Um, and it's something that, that people tend to have different viewpoints on. So I'm really, I'm really excited about getting into this in a bit more detail today with you, Christopher, and, and being able to share some of the, some of the findings and, and, and viewpoints with the listeners here. So we've got three points that we're going to talk through today. So would you be able to kick us off with the first point we've got around livability and smart cities? Look, one of the things that people when they're looking for data about cities or information about cities, they look at rankings. And, and so Melbourne has been called one of the world's most livable cities for, an, for a long time. Vienna recently uh, took that crown. Their Swiss cities are always in the hunt. But what people don't understand about livability is that that's reflecting how nice a place it is to live for an expat based on cost of living and other things. So there's a technical definition of what livability is. That's been defined by two firms, The Economist and Mercer. Mercer did it as a HR ranking. Mm -hmm. So effectively, it was like how much you need to pay an executive. And Switzerland's a great place to live, but it's expensive. So Zurich is one of the world's most expensive cities. I think I paid $25 US for a kebab in Zurich. So it sounds uh, like most days here in Singapore. <laughs> Singapore is up there too. It's on the yeah. expat list. So, yeah. so livability is one of the things that people... It doesn't necessarily mean it's a great place to live. Now, we would argue somewhere like Dallas uh, is a great place to live with lower cost of living, but it depends on your personal needs. And, and if you're raising a young family, that would be different to say if you were uh, looking for, if you were single 
and you're looking for a party town. So that's the, the, the point about livability. Uh, it varies quite a bit and people don't always necessarily understand that at a, at a technical level. And I guess as well, I mean, the kind of the, the livability, although there's these indexes, uh, like you mentioned, right, you've got to look at the, the different data points and, and, and how they get to the point in which they're ranked. But often as well, livability is also kind of, it's a perception thing, isn't it? Everyone's different. Um, and people are looking for different things when they decide on, on where they should set up and where they should live. Exactly. And, and, yeah. and so personal, your stage of life, your particular needs. And when you're comparing cities uh, at a corporate level as an analyst, so they, the people who want to compare locations worldwide, the issue is what do you include and what do you exclude? Also, what data is available? We have a much larger data set than other people, which is why we've worked on other people's rankings uh, mm. as well as our own. So ours is the Innovation Cities Index, which is different because it's different to livability and smart and it includes elements of both. So we look at a broad-based set of criteria. So we look at things like startups and how many startups there are in a city. But we also look at how technologically advanced the city is. And we look at how you would employ people in the city, things like the labor force. And so we, we go for the broad sweep uh, as conditions for innovation. And the reason why that's important is of course, innovation is what you really want in, in many cases in the city. And we've been publishing that since 2007, so we've been through many cycles. And innovation is, the reason why you want that is you want the city to be lively and changing and dynamic, but not so much that it's just purely a place where technology happens. So it's like a balance, I think, and, and, and we've kind of worked on that. Though I have to say COVID-19 has thrown a total curveball to everybody's data models. And so you're, you're reworking everything because your assumptions about the scale of a city change. Uh, the other type of ranking that people often refer to or, or look at is smart cities. Now, smart cities are basically the idea is that technology can enable certain functions in a city. One of the downsides of that is that the city starts thinking for you and there's reduced uh, privacy, we would argue that that reduces creativity. So reduced privacy reduces the op people's uh, ability to create. And the, you can think of that as the Schrodinger cat uh, paradigm, where yeah. basically you don't know if the cat exists or not uh, in the box. So uh, it's one of those interesting intellectual exercises and, and being watched all the time can reduce your your creativity. So we have to be careful and balance it. And that's the conversation I've had when I've been in Europe speaking to city governments. And uh, even when I was at the UN and speaking there, uh, the conversation was the concerns with cities had around the, the implications of smart for them. But on the other hand, of course, everybody wants to have the latest technology, but it has to be enabling attributes for the citizens and for the businesses and of course, it has to make uh, wealth for the uh, for the broader number. Uh, it has to be on balance a good thing for the city. Smart has to be good in order to be smart. Yes. And wh why do you think it is, Christopher? So many interesting points there. I, I loved all of that. Why Why do you think it is that? Uh, I mean, you got into it a little bit, and, and but it's kind of like as you reduce privacy, you reduce creativity. Is it that? 
is it that fear almost that people have if they're being watched or if, if they if they take a wrong step they're not able to to be as creative or is, is there something there that that you can really kind of hone down on on why as you reduce privacy creativity drops well i i think there is a a broader point to that and it's a simple yeah. question which is when you feel under pressure or when you feel you're being monitored or you're relaxed when do your ideas come to you most people they go to the beach for their ideas they go to the shower for their ideas whenever i've asked a group of people this question they often say i get the ideas in the shower i get the yeah. ideas in the beach i get the ideas when i'm out in nature those are popular points uh their concept of grounding or walking on grass uh, for ideas. A lot of people find that interesting. Some people get their ideas in an art gallery. Some people get them in a design museum. So if you make the future Orwellian, then you you reduce that creativity and you reduce the income coming into all the businesses. And eventually you reduce the turnover of the society, which is the GDP. So, so killing creativity by becoming a surveillance state is very, it does reduce it because it redu it makes you think before you act and it makes you pause. And it's something to do with the old Schrodinger's cat paradigm. But it's, if you watch something, it changes. And in quantum physics, if you watch a particle, it's a particle. But if you don't watch it, it's a wave. And it, it kind of gets, it's no more complicated than that. I mean, it, no more complicated than quantum physics. But there's interesting articles online which you can Google about that. But quantum physics goes into it. And and in effect, if you watch something, you make people self-conscious and they pause. And I think we need to be free to express our ideas and to have the debate of great ideas. And that's where innovation comes in. I mean, the coffee house was a great centre for innovation in the 18th century. And that's because the ideas brewed in there. And that's one reason why our index measures coffee houses, because they're a, a great point of of uh, innovation they've been one of the drivers of innovation and there's interest there's a lot of inf interesting information about that so, so actually what you're saying is sometimes by going too smart or going too technological actually it can be a double-edged sword because the the creativity that you're trying to foster in the city can be reduced yes yeah and, and this is indeed a concern i've heard from people who are in charge of several of the major european cities directly have heard from them that they're concerned about that uh, because it's very much a, a, an issue uh, because the technology has to have a case. And sometimes what we're getting is technology for technology's sake. Yeah. I mean, the project that's easy to approve is not necessarily the project uh, that actually delivers an outcome for the people uh, who, who live and work and, and, and in the city. And it, it's in the interests of everybody in the city to make the city the best place possible. Yeah. So, so what's the sweet spot for you? I mean, you kind of, you mentioned around livability and, and making sure you get that balance right around not doing technology for technology's steps, uh, sake. So what's the kind of sweet spot or are there any cities kind of that come to mind that do get it right? Look, over a long run, cities like Amsterdam and Vienna have done a, pretty well. Uh, historically in the United States, Boston has done mm. very well. Uh, although that, that was down to one of the mayors, who was Thomas Menino, who was a very, very good mayor. Uh, sometimes a very, very good mayor. Melbourne has always done very well, down to particularly a, a premier of the state, who was Jeff Kennett, who may have had other issues with the public service and government. So no hating on me for liking Jeff Kennett. 
but um, but the point is that he did a great job in getting the creativity and the wine bars and all the culture yep. going. And our Melbourne rose up the livability rankings. It was the delayed work of, of previous governments that really pushed it to the top uh, and the sustained work to, to, to keep it there. Certainly, if you analyse cities like Seoul, they have a lot of layers. And I think that's another city that's really, really interesting, which does combine technology. And indeed, in the 80s, they had some of the smart technology and they've integrated it quite well. So Seoul, and I think I feel to a certain extent, Tokyo is now becoming, they've gone through the technology paradigm and then they're coming out the other side. So there's some interesting stuff happening uh, from Tokyo with creativity. They've, they've had a rise in interest in jazz music, if you've ever watched the movie. Um, what's that movie? Oh, Lost in Translation with Bill Murray. That's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Mm. That's the sort Classic. of a, but There's a lot of interesting stuff happening uh, yes. uh, in, in, in Tokyo right now. And it yeah. has been for some time. And I feel that they ha have come out the other side of a pure tech play. And that's really what we're talking about. So they kind of come through the other side and then they're starting to, it's, it's that kind of livability now that's kind of coming back. That, that cultural yes, side. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Human, human, making cities yes. more human. Yes, that's the key, isn't it? You don't want to feel like you're living in a, in a large airport. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Ferris wheels are my favourite. Everybody got a Ferris wheel for a while. Do you remember the Ferris wheel phase? Yes, I remember that very well, yeah. <laughs> the, the first couple were great, but then everybody yeah. started building Ferris wheels. And... Mm. Uh, uh, but living in an, a city that's an airport, yeah, that's a good point. The uh, the Tom Hanks movie, you've got to be able to leave. Um, so, so I think, yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, I think Chris, that, Christopher, that takes us nicely on to the, the second point. And we've touched on it a little bit, but um, the second thing we're going to talk through is around innovation and technology uh, and some of the common misconceptions around that. Would you be able to kind of talk us through the second point? So, look, in terms of common misconceptions about innovation. Innovation is something which is a process that creates ideas that then turn into uh, need to be implemented or executed. Yeah. Now, I prefer the phrase implemented. Some people prefer the phrase executed. I think implemented is a nicer way of describing it. The other side of that would be that it then has to, be, to basically grow in scale. Mm. And if you can't scale an innovation, it stays local. So these days we're talking about global scaling of innovations or at the very least regional scaling. Now, as tensions rise around the world at the moment, we're probably not going to be looking at global scaling. We're going to be looking at block scaling. So, for instance, if you have an idea, uh, it should scale across the whole of the European Union and then into the Stan countries, down through perhaps uh, other countries in the region, Turkey, etc., etc. Uh, and it, it could scale quite well, or you could scale across a pan-Islamic. If you had a certain innovation that would work within the Islamic culture, could scan pan-Islamic across different Islamic countries or pan-Asian. So, so in a way, we're kind of maybe not going to be as global, I think. That's a, a very important point in this whole technology thing. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to become more regional. Uh, but um, regardless of that, technology is just a tool. And sometimes we get so focused on the tool, like downloading the app. You have to download the app. But my point is the application of technology is the important point. So innovation is really the useful in, in some respects. I mean, it's a, it's a bet, there's a better definition than this, but just if you're comparing the two, 
if you want to word the, add the word application in front of technology, then and it, it doesn't have a use. I mean, you can have as much technology as you want, but it needs to have a use, and it's not in an end in and of itself. So many times we we, we focus on getting new uh, internet technology, but it doesn't necessarily deliver an outcome that makes people better off. So then you would argue there's not creating equity of outcomes, but you don't really want equity of outcomes. What you want is equity of inputs or basically you want people to have opportunity. Um, and indeed, this is in the strategy of a number of cities that they want people to have opportunities. And so if technology becomes a barrier because someone doesn't have technology skills because they happen to not go to the right school or they happen to have some other issue um, in life, you really want to make sure that you are getting people having the opportunity to apply technology. And that's one of the things I admired about uh, some of the city strategy is that mm. they've really started to think that way, like you have to apply uh, technology to a, to a problem. You have to make it useful to people. So is it, is it starting more with the problem first and then looking at ways in which you can solve that problem and, and then technology is a part of that rather than just going in, just how can we solve this with technology or is it something different? I think it start, you can start with the technology first, mm. but you have to have an application, which means it has to help people yes. uh, in some way. And it has to not help people in a partisan way. The problem is the world's become very fractured. If you look at, in many cases, we, are, we get into these, people get into these inhumane screaming matches online where they're decrying uh, the other side, whoever the other side are. And quite often you find most people actually want a good outcome. There's a few Machiavellian types out there, but most people actually believe they're doing the right thing for the right reason. And calling anybody lots of names and just sort of, storming off is not the way to do that. So what's happening is technology is allowing people to fracture because the technology dictates strategy. It shouldn't dictate strategy. There needs to be a sort of fundamental framing of strategy in terms of what's useful to a city. And that includes things like people's ability to get a job, take care of their family, work, and everybody needs to, to do those things. So there's certain, if you like, opportunities that should be available to people to buy a house, to put their kids through college or to put their kids through a trade. So those are the sorts of things and those opportunities are the, should be the primary goal of our technology for each of our cities. It should be the opportunities and that's where we, we really need to focus. And if anybody out there thinks about the opportunities they have uh, in life, how much that comes down to the city they are in. And how many people like yourself have moved cities uh, many times? Very true. Three times. I've, I've been in Singapore for 11 years now, coming on 11 years. But yeah, from the north of England to London and then to Singapore. And it's chasing, it is, the, it is the difference in opportunities and the environment and all the great things that those cities offer. Mm -hmm. And it's really understanding what a city offers you. So once upon a time, you wanted to succeed, you'd go to New York, that it, game over. You go to New York, talk to the right people, get into the right field, and you'd be a success in most industries. Now cities are not like that anymore. You know, you might go to Austin, Texas. You might go to Seattle. Seattle's got a great tech scene, and they've got a wonderful uh, 
technology business sector that relates to the airline industry and uh, pharmaceutical industries. So depending on what your field or your interests are, you might find that it's better to go to different places than just go to New York. You know, once upon a time it was head to New York. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Um, so now it's like, well, where am I a fit? Where, where is my family a fit? Where's the future for me? Um, in the, and of course, we're in a COVID era, so it's very hard to make that decision. But with any luck, we'll be able to mo mobilise more in the future soon. And do you have much thoughts around, um, I'm getting off the topic a little bit here, but just while we're, on, we're talking about it, obviously kind of the health pandemic has removed so much of a need for people to be very close to maybe the centre of a major city. And what you're seeing is actually people now moving more to the suburbs or moving more outside. Uh, is that something that's, that's coming up a lot at the moment or did you have any thoughts there? I'll share with you a data point. Yeah. 25% of the law firms in London have closed in one year. Now, that's a shocking number because mm. lawyers almost always exist. Mm -hmm. And since last year, 25% of the law firms in London have closed. Now, if you did the numbers on that, you would find that some of them, a lot of them would be smaller firms and single practitioners. What has happened in balance to that is people have actually increased the number of law firms in Coventry or in uh, Liverpool or in a variety of other English cities. They've effectively, the lawyers have packed up and said, I'm leaving London, I'm going back to my hometown as, yeah. uh, uh, with light speed. Because at the end of the day, if there's not opportunities here, I'm going to exit. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've had a Lexit, uh, to coin a phrase, <laughs> London exit. Uh, and and it, it's unfortunate because it takes away the, the, the crux, but then some of the good ideas will spread to these other cities perhaps, and that's the optimism. So yes. definitely there's been a move. Uh, in America, there's been, in 2018, there was, a, there was the start of an exodus from New York, which was very slow as a trickle. It didn't really show up until two th the end of 2019. But now there's more data on it. We can see there's actually bit, was already an exodus from New York, the metro area, but particularly from Manhattan. There's been, and that now it's accelerating dramatically. Um, and it's because literally if you don't have opportunity in those places then they're not the best places to live and people will move to better cities uh and of course that will drive up the the, the cycle begins the kuna matata but um and gentrification and all those arguments which you can get into with a uh, a long time but but in effect yeah that's the thing people will move and will relocate and a lot of the data we find we find interesting things we found that there's very spiky data on law firms up and down there's very spiky data on accounting practices there's lots of things happening uh, where people are moving enterprises at the moment enterprise rates have dropped across cities there's some very fascinating data it, it's all going to change everything's going everything's on the table and I guess that's back to your earlier points as well around cities thinking through how they can provide people with opportunities and now yes you've got this kind of digital workforce where people have worked from home and there was always that, I guess, even though companies offered work from home, if they did offer it, if you're a knowledge-based worker, there was always that kind of maybe a little bit of stigma that went along with, you know, oh, I'm working from home today, whereas my colleagues are in the office. Whereas now this has really showed that, that teams can be just as productive. People can be accountable for what they need to be accountable for working from home. And again, then cities, I guess, that were maybe not tier one or were outside in the suburbs before now have an opportunity with technology to 
to offer some of those same kind of opportunities, but with a, a cheaper cost of living if, if you're away from a major city, a capital city. There, there's a there's lot to unpack in that statement. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and a lot, you, you've given me a lot to work with there, Danny. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, so I would say the first point about productivity is yeah. that overall it depends on the industry. Mm-hmm. So self-paced workers who are experts and who are clever, clever people uh, will sometimes be more productive at home because they don't have office politics uh, and they don't have office distractions. Uh, you know, everybody's singing along for the, the fact that there's cake today and all those sort of other things, which sometimes tech people and those yeah. are people who are in tech get annoyed with because they, they're not really, they're in, when they're programming, they don't want it, they're in the zone. They don't want to mm-hmm. be out of that zone. Um, and having the, a, a bash on a video game console and sitting there on a beanbag or sitting on a chair or something and somehow or other getting in the zone. Once you're in the zone, you want to program for six, eight, 12 hours straight. And so for those people, it works really well. But then when there's chance collaboration, that declines for some people who are in the more collaborative roles where they're not independent professionals. And so sometimes that can decline. So it's it's sort of mixed signals, I think, on, on working from home. But it works better for a lot of people and companies, so it's an offsetting cost of the, obviously they don't have as much office space and that. But mm. on the other hand, it declines the, 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 the relevance of the CBD and therefore it takes pressure off the transport system, reducing investment, mm. but it also declines the great granular nature of the CBD where there's always coffee shops and restaurants, there won't be as many, but they all spread to the, so it's not like there's more than one trend. There's like one trend going one way and another mm. trend going the other. And so it kind of is case by case. And then the cumulative total of all those cases is the, is the case. But certainly for a lot of people who've been arguing that they're more productive at home when they don't have, uh, my favorite story is I was working with an employee of a tech company who shall remain nameless, but they have three letters in their name, uh, okay. who favorite job, what you could guess, was cutting toenails whilst they were on the phone. And the okay. clippings would fly, fling over. I hope, the I hope it wasn't a video call. It was not a video call. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, but audio calls, right? So, yeah, so yeah. You know, and we've all got one of those colleagues. So mm. sometimes, you know, productivity, all joking aside, productivity is better at home and sometimes it's mm. not. Um, so that's the first point you raised. Um, what was the second, the second point, if you refresh my memory, was regarding... It was just taking uh, it back to that kind of the opportunities that you mentioned before and... and, and I think for cities looking more at the opportunities for its people and how technology can enable that. And then, you know, as people right, kind of right. migrate out of the city, then is there an opportunity then for those cities that maybe weren't seen as the, the most desirable place because they weren't within an hour's commute or half an hour's commute to the office? Do they now have an opportunity through technology to be to become more of a, a place that people want to live and, and work? massive opportunity. So that is the upside. So there's a little bit of a mixed signal in the data there. Then there's the opportunity. The opportunity for the small to medium-sized cities, especially those that are not an inconvenient trip from the city. So like a two-hour drive or a, or a short plane flight from another city uh, or a short train trip in Europe. Uh, basically, those cities where you can go to the office once every few days or once a month or something when you need to for a big event. Those really are the sweet spot. And indeed, there's been an exodus of people towards those areas to some extent. And I think if you can, 
there's an argument for quality of life in those areas, there may not be the same amount of hospital infrastructure or yeah. other issues that might crop up, but there's so much opportunity for coffee shops, restaurants, businesses, all these enterprises to get a kickstart in a city that's not a first tier city traditionally. And that's my point about going to New York. People mm -hmm. don't have to go to New York anymore, more specifically Manhattan. They can, you know, go to upstate New York. They could go to Buffalo. They could go to mm -hmm. Rochester. They could also go as easily to some, not to Miami, but to somewhere in Elson, Florida. There's opportunities around that area. In, in Asia, there's opportunities, say, in Korea, in the, not, not in Seoul, but in the other cities in Korea, which mm -hmm. have historically had traffic problems uh, that have resulted in people you know, living in Seoul. So there's opportunities all around Korea. There's opportunities all around Japan. Japan's got an excellent transport system, as you know. So, but there's opportunities everywhere for that. And there's opportunities to live outside and to telework, as they used to call it, uh, to remote work. But there's opportunities in, and layers of opportunities for all the small to medium cities. That's yeah. really the exciting news. And that's already showing up in the data. And we've got yeah. some analysis on that we've been putting together. So yeah, I agree. Um, there's massive opportunities. Uh, you know, we found quite a few opportunities for small to medium cities, we'd argue. And that's yeah. a massive reversal from previous years previously london tokyo new york chicago they're just killing it you know yeah. they were just sucking all the people in all the brains now they've let them go a little and maybe it'll in the long run it'll work out well yeah and if you are one of these major cities should you be worried i mean when the vaccine comes do you think we'll see people return in droves to these major cities and just a return to the kind of office as normal or, or do you think this is really around to stay I think there will always be an office as normal because people will discover that the collaboration is falling. And already my colleagues that I've spoke to are saying that collaboration is under threat. Uh, and this was a concern when I've been talking to a senior economist about this, that he was concerned that the, what you call the water cooler effect, uh, that, that dies down. So uh, I think that the already reserved banks are keeping an eye on this and they want the, the liveliness of the CBD, certainly the mayors mm. do. And I, I've spoken to some mayors and they, they certainly are really passionate about the liveliness of their CBD. But on the other hand, you, you need both. You need the balance uh, of the liveliness, but you also are going to get this trend, which is going to take some pressure off the transport system because you, obviously with any sort of health crisis, you don't want tran crowded transport and you kind of going to need to redefine your city a little bit. I think the big yeah. cities that get out ahead of it and try to, solve the problem early will we'll win. I think uh, at the moment, London's on the wrong track, uh, mm -hmm. very much on the wrong track. I think there are other cities that are on the wrong track. I think on the right track, some of the Asian cities, um, I think in Korea, they're doing some good things. And I think there's some interesting stuff happening in different cities around the world. And America, it's very hard to tell at the moment, but always, I, I think you, you know, you might want to end up in a medium-sized city and that's where the people are migrating to. So the data says people are migrating to medium-sized cities. So if they didn't feel there was opportunity and for the big cities, it comes down to this. What we would say to think now, we'd say you have to provide an opportunity. You cannot sit there lecturing your population consistently like you're the, like you're the Lord and everybody else is the servant and expect them to be productive because you rely on their productivity because your tax is their productivity. And if you're not getting that, you're behind the eight ball. And that, yeah. that's certainly something that say in the UAE, they're, they're starting, they've got a handle on that. Yeah. A lot of Western countries have forgotten it. 
and some of their cities are, are in danger of falling behind and creating a gap for themselves by not understanding that basically your tax is the productivity of another person. And if they don't have productivity, there's no tax. Great point. Good way to end that, that second, uh, second uh, area we were discussing. So I think that leads us really nicely into the last point here, Christopher, around finding your purpose. Um, and again, we'll, we'll touch on the health pandemic a little bit here around, um, you know, how I guess people have felt a little bit lost through the health pandemic and, uh, and yeah. also around how the city then ties back into that. So I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts here. Oh, look, I think everybody felt lost. And if you're not feeling lost, you haven't been exposed to the risks of the pandemic. So if you didn't take a hit in your income, if your income rose, and some people's income has risen uh, due to all the different subsidies and things that have flowed to the system, if you didn't take a hit or... And I, I know someone working for the one of the city bodies in a, in a major city who took... They took across the board a 20% hit. Yeah. Uh, in their pay. And some several people in consulting firms initially, maybe that's reversed now, have took 20% pay cuts. Some were managed out as a result of the partners keeping their pay. Uh, we won't say which firms they were. Um, but but basically, a lot of people have been have suffered. And it, it's, it's, uh, it's a tough time. And the answer to that is to look at what you really want out of your life and to think, well, do I really want to work in this particular job or this particular industry? Now it's easier to change job and not change industry, or it's easier to change industry, but not change job. It's, you can't really change industry and job at the same time. You're changing two things at once. Mm. So it's maybe a, a staged response. So in the data over the next five years, we'll probably see a staged response to this. And we'll probably see cities change over a great period. So there'll be, there'll be a lot of conflicting signals. It'd be very hard to pick through the data. But I think what I would say that the data is saying is that niche is king as it's always been. And understanding your niche and your particular brand are crazy and somehow rather leveraging that into either a full-time job where you're doing your crazy every day that works for you. And when I say you're crazy, I mean the thing that you know, makes you a bit different. I mean, I, I've worked with data for... Uh, over 20 years now, I've worked for 800 different engagements. I've tried to leave it a couple of times, but it always chases me. If I leave it, it chases me down, hunts me down and drags me back. So my first engagement was at IAG, where I, I, I learnt how data implies, which is the largest insurer in Australia, um, and it, it, I learnt how data applied to policy, and it's nothing like they teach you in business school. So if you've just come out of school or you're, you're in your first or second job, you have to get useful applying your skills you cannot have skills that are theoretical anything you learn in university that hasn't been tested doesn't work because you have to apply it and, and you'd appreciate that because your you know practical experience is the thing that you learn i call it i don't know if you'd agree with this i call it getting punched in the face by reality yeah. if you don't get punched in the face by reality every day you haven't learned anything and if it's cushy and cozy and nice and comfortable then you know, you haven't done, you haven't learned anything that day. Being punched in the face by reality is what is what teaches you. It's getting you. It's kind of pushing yourself and getting yourself outside of that comfort zone every single day. And I think when yes. you when you have those awkward moments and you feel challenged and maybe you feel a little bit nervous or you've got those kind of butterflies in your stomach, you generally know that they're the moments that you're learning. <laughs> and yeah, you're kind of doing things that 
that, that you aren't comfortable with and, and you're moving forward, I think, yeah, the, the danger is when you kind of get in, stuck into that routine and you feel a bit lost, like you've said, and, and, and I think the health pandemics are shown to spotlight on that. that. That's where maybe you have to rethink a few things. Yeah, so, so I guess generally for people who are looking at a transition, the best thing from the data about cities would be to look at where do you want to really live over a 20-year period? Where, where do you want to raise your kids and where do you want to, to where would you think that over a 20 year period is going to be a good spot to live? Because everything's going to be topsy turvy for a while as a result of this. Now there might be a, a massive boom next year. It's a possibility. It's one of the scenarios. There might be a massive crash next year, which is another scenario. And, and in effect, it's very hard to know which scenario will be dominant. And uh, so y- you might want to think, well, hold on a second, am I going to rely on a politician's whim or the, the interest rates or some virus from, from a, a back somewhere to, to define my life or am I going to think, well, what am I up to for the next 20 years? So it's thinking about where do you want to go uh, if you have the option. I mean, a lot of people don't. But if you don't have the option, you can always do it over a five-year period. So if you're transitioning over a period, where do you really think if you were really looking at it and then maybe get some data on it and find yeah. out uh, or at least ask some people, friends. Yeah. There's lots of bulletin boards out there. You don't have to pay any money for that. You can just mm-hmm. go and ask, find out lots of information. I mean, the one thing we have now is we have a YouTube video on every city in the world. Christopher, is it about maybe what do you stand for? What are your brand? Uh, what's your brand or what are your kind of core values? And then trying to find a city that aligns with that in terms of where you want to set up for, for the next kind of 10 to 20 years. I think there's a lot of self-selection in that. And, and, mm. and, and a lot of times, like what people would say now is where is my tribe? But it's, it's almost getting to that point because once upon a time, we all kind of were tolerant of each other and we weren't fragmented. Mm. And the media has kind of drummed up for its own interest in selling stories to some extent, not all of the media, but a large part of it. And the, the social media, as I warned about this years ago, has unleashed this which is that we become fractured. Mm. And uh, the problem with that is that then you have to sort of find a group that aligns with you. And I think to some extent that that includes finding a city or an area within a city that aligns with you. And then you feel, com- you feel not within your comfort zone, but you feel that you can get ahead in that city. And I think there'll be a lot of movement after this pandemic where people will be thinking, hold on a second, maybe I don't want to live in the big city. I want to go to a regional area or a city has already happened in Australia, it's happened in the United States, and it might be being close to your family if that's important, or it might be being away from your family if that's important. It's really, there's no right or wrong answer. It's just what's up to your own values as, you, as you've rightly pointed out. Mm. Christopher, I've really loved the conversation today. Um, all three points have, have brought me so much value. I've got about 10 pages of notes here that I'll be referring back to, to later. I've really got so much value out of it, as I said. Um, just just to round off, um, I'd love it if you could could share um, one life or career lesson with with our listeners. Um, just to, just to wrap things up, I would like to share something for people in government making decisions. I think it's a it's a specific, particular thing when you're taking the prism of government decisions because some part of our free agency has been taken away from from people in most cities now, and so there, there's there's one thing that's interesting about that. I reiterate the point, which is tomorrow's tax is the productivity of a person. 
and I think if we want people to be productive, we have to listen to where they're coming from and, and understand and make cities really focus on, on being great places and hotbeds for ideas and creativity. But if you're looking at policy, the, the point about that as a government person, there's one point. And Sherlock Holmes is my, my source on this, uh, the fictional character of Arthur Conan Doyle, which is once you exclude the impossible, the result you arrive at, no matter how improbable, is the result. And quite often these days, we're getting into a situation where we're arguing over talking points based on a partisan political view. And what we really should be doing is looking at what the data is telling us. And the data tells us the truth if we don't try to skew it or we don't try to fit it to a line or manipulate it. So the key thing in all my 20 odd years of experience in analysing data is to listen to the data. And that's really the, the thing. And then when you're listening to it, to be looking for confirmation bias and all those things. And I think in government, what they're doing sometimes, in, 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 if you're working in that area, you must listen to the data and be brave enough to stand up to colleagues who are, who are promoting a point based on something they learnt, but not the data. The data tells you the truth. At the end of the day, it tells you the nuts and bolts of what's happening. And if you don't have the data, you can get it, but you've got to understand the data once you get it and you've got to really interpret it. So listen to the data. And if you can't listen to the data, listen to your gut. But <laughs> yeah. you know, in, 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 we must bring data. Yeah. It's the key thing there, though, like you said, just being brave enough to stand up to, to colleagues that have the opposing viewpoint if you've got the data and the data is telling you the truth. Yes, I, I think that's the key. I mean, it's very hard, but sometimes you, you have to be brave enough to stand up and say, look, the data's saying something different here. And you really have to check your data and make sure it's saying what you say it's saying. But, but if you have the data and support, that's really where we should be making more decisions. And quite often, we've all been in those situations where the decision's made that people are going in a direction because it's something someone heard at a conference and they heard about this new thing and they want to do an, an initiative in this area, so they've, they've run with it. Mm. And my favourite example is, a, is an advisor who, are, who was in charge of smart cities um, who, are, who didn't know what the definition of smart cities was, which is not unusual, but the point is that they were in charge of an initiative and the initiative was started before the, 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 the terminology was defined. And that often happens, let's be mm. realistic. Mm. But the main thing is to push back and to say, look, the data's not supporting what we're doing here or I have this I these ideas based on the data, a couple of scenarios. That will help. And if you can back things up with data, you're not just an opinion. Yeah. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Um, opinions are, quote Clint Eastwood, anybody can Google that, I won't say it, but uh, <laughs> you might know that one. Uh, but, but data is uh, the gold uh, standard uh, when it comes to understanding what's really going on. Yeah, I don't think there's any better way to, to round off this episode, so I'm not <laughs> going to try, Christopher. So uh, how can people get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Look, I'm a bit slow responding, uh, mainly because I have... 30,693 items in my inbox at the moment. Um, <laughs> so I can be a bit slow responding, but if you reach out to me via LinkedIn is the best way to get in touch. I will accept requests that are not just pitching me something. Uh, anything interesting I'll accept. So if you want to reach out via LinkedIn, it's easy to find me, Christopher Hire. You can also go in through the Innovation Cities Index. If you just type that into Google, we'll pop up and you can look through that website, that's a really good way to get information on cities. It's a general ranking. It's free. 
The data, of course, is for sale, but the, the, the general ranking is free. It's 2019. We are working on the 2020 for those who are going to ask that question because it's the most often, often question. But 2020 has been a movable feast, to say the least. Christopher, thank you so much for coming on Digital Transformation and Leadership and sharing all your wisdom over your very, very amazing career with our listeners. I've really, really enjoyed the conversation today. So thank you so much. Thank you, Danny, for being a great interviewer. And thank you for the opportunity to appear on your uh, program and for the chance to speak. We made it to the end of another episode of Digital Transformation and Leadership. If you're enjoying the show, please do leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. No need to leave a written review. Just clicking on the five stars is enough. It really does help the podcast get found, and I'd really appreciate it if you could do that. And we'll be back again next week, when we will again go behind the scenes with another top business leader to understand how they're digitally transforming their company. The Digital Transformation and Leadership Podcast is a Blue Aurora Media Production.